Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. Go check out their catalog. This week, we have a post-opening diary, something that we've been trying to do for a long time with the team, the creative duo behind Co. I think we dropped Momofuku, and it's just called Co. these days. And they have Co Bar. It's on 8 Extra Place. First Street and Bowery, essentially. And um, it's a little nook in the East Village. The first version of Co. was at 163 First Avenue, which was the original noodle bar, which was about 600 square feet upstairs. Uh, That was the entire restaurant. And um, we opened that in 2009 with uh, Peter Serpico, who is one of the great chefs of America. I think he's got a cookbook coming out this year or next year. And he is the chef of the eponymous... Serpico in Philadelphia. Check it out. Pete Serpico, uh, one of my favorite people and one of the great chefs out there. And we were so sort of shocked that Co even worked, to be honest. Originally, it was a 12-seat restaurant. We were going to do a tasty menu for like 90 bucks. And no idea that it would work as well as it did. And we've been blessed to have some amazing cooks walk through the kitchen of Co some of the best cooks in America, in my opinion, and, and abroad. We've, we've had a real eclectic mix. And we've been so honored to have Chef Sean Gray take Co over. And I think he, he's been the head chef since Serpico left. So that's like maybe seven, eight years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, my time frames these days are getting worse and worse and worse. But uh, Sean has been working at Momofuku for many years, uh, worked at Noodle Bar, worked at Sambar, and I genuinely think he's one of the best chefs in America, a great technician and a great teacher, and he's really come into his own at the new Co. because it's basically a new restaurant. We opened that up, I think, five years ago now, which is crazy to say. So Co. <sighs> We'll get into the conversation with Sue and Sean, and they'll give you a little bit more background and and contextualize what it has been and where it's come from. And we've wanted to have them on this podcast for some time now, but the schedule's never worked out. And they have taken Co upon themselves, and they basically run it as their own enterprise these days. And, you know, we wanted to sort of get a snapshot of where it's at because I don't know if a lot of people know about what Co is because I wouldn't say it's secretive, but we don't talk about it that much. 
the first year of its existence, we got two Michelin stars, and um, I did a moth talk about it, about how paralyzing that was because of the pressures involved. And Co has a lot of external pressures put on itself because of the expectations. Everyone that works at Co feels that it has to be the best and, you know, strives to get all these awards and accolades and all this stuff. And there's good and there's bad in that. And, and this has been a, an illuminating conversation to have. And there's some real hard parts in this conversation for me, Sue, and Sean. And a lot of it's, I think, cathartic. There's been some real rough patches dealing with the pressures of that legacy. And Co's change, it's not even remotely same to the first restaurant. Even though there might be some dishes that are carryovered, upon close inspection, if you really know what's happened, they have a, maybe two or three dishes from the very first iteration of the restaurant. But they might look the same, but they are so different. And it gives me greater perspective as how things can evolve. And when I did some stages in Kyoto and Murata-sana, the great chef of Kikunoi, said, we change. People don't think that we change here in Kyoto, which is like the, the bastion of kaiseki cuisine. And you would think that things don't change. It's about preserving. But he said, they change all the time. It just changes in different amounts of time. So, you know, change might happen over 10, 15-year period, not in one month as it might in another restaurant. And in some ways, Co is like that. It changes at its own pace. It's its own culture, its own team. And it really has taken different form and shape when Sue Wong Ruiz came on board. And Sue's been with Momo a long time. She was the opening general manager of Sayobo in Sydney. And, uh, you know, Paul... Carmichael and Kylie Javier Ashton, they've been on this podcast. We did a post-opening diaries with them. They've taken over Sayobo and taken it to a whole different level, in my opinion, way better than anything that we ever did. And Sue came from there, and she spent some time at Mopesh, and she really was influential in teaching me the importance of front of the house. And I think the world of her. And, you know, a lot of times you spend so much time at work in kitchens and the restaurants that you develop your own work relationship there, that it's it's almost like a different marriage. Even if you're married in real life, your work relationships are like your second marriage. And it can be really intense. Like any relationship, it can be rewarding and also disappointing. And I was really proud of Sean and Sue to bear their soul as much as they could and to talk about the highs and the lows of working together. And you know, finding our way at Co. There's been some real low points and some real high points. And I never thought that Sue and Sean would talk about the ups and the downs as they did in this podcast. So I'll just leave it at that without gibbering and jabbering so much. This could be difficult to hear. And I think it could be for some listeners because I know if you work in this business, what we're about to share and what we're about to talk about, I think a lot of people are going to be able to resonate with. Just because you think you were at the top of the mountain or whatever, it oftentimes doesn't feel that way. And I hope that we can reevaluate restaurants and customers can appreciate what we try to do, what Sean and Sue and the rest of the team at Co. and the rest of the kinds of restaurants that are trying to like push it and uh, the expectations of the Michelin Guide and Top 50 and New York Times and all that fucking shit, man. It, it, it's true. We did sign up for this, but... This is the beginning of a conversation, and, and I, I know that Sean and Sue are going to be back on this podcast, and I couldn't be more proud of them and what the team's accomplished. 
and uh, I'll shut up now. Here's a post-opening diaries with Suwon Ruiz and Sean Gray of Co and Cobar. We're at a place in our relationship and in your guys' career where it's like, okay, we have some mastery, uh, but not fully, but we have a good team at Co. What's the next phase for your careers and for the team at Co and for what you guys might want to do? We're going through growing pains. We'll touch upon that in a second. But I've been wanting to do this podcast with you two for a long time. I think Sean's been down. Sue's been non-down. Not true. (laughs) (laughs) So not true. (laughs) Why have we not? We've been trying to get this on the books for a long time. There's more important people in your life, Dave. That's not true. (laughs) I blame this all on Sue. Wow. What do you think, Sean? We've been trying to do this. Yeah, it's been a minute. I've been just, I guess I've been thinking of, I've been scared of what it's going to be or like nervous of what the questions are going to, what kind of answers the questions are going to be created from. Because we have pretty hardcore conversations mm-hmm. and we've all known each other a very long time and worked together for a very long time. And it is a a, a very intimate slice of of Momofuku um, and something that is different because Co moved out of 161st Avenue. Co is, I think, what, in general, 10 years old? 11. 11. Oh, my mm-hmm. fucking God. <laughs> That's wild. Wow. And we, the old space, the new space is five years old. Um, we, we started this restaurant because we had no choice. Uh, it's not like we wanted to do fine dining. There were physical limitations that forced our hand. And Co was a very the original Co was a very special thing, starting with Pete, Pete Serpico, who's now at Serpico in Philadelphia, and then Mitch Bates, and we just had a wonderful team. And to my surprise, we got two Mission Stars that first year, and I, I I think we've been the longest custodian of two Mission Stars ever in America, which is great. And you guys know my feelings; like if we ever get three stars, great. But I'm cool with trying to be the longest two star ever. Mm-hmm. Um. And we moved, we were trying to find the right place when we moved five years ago. And we've been trying to do a post-opening diaries pretty much since we started this podcast. We're almost at 100 episodes. It's almost been two years. And we finally got the chance to do this. So I'm happy we have you guys here. Um, If people didn't get to the old co, and now they're at the new co, what was the biggest challenge for you guys to move? which was effectively 600 square feet, 12 seats into a much more spacious. Nuco is much larger, still counter, but different. Can you talk about that first transition? Uh, I think the, like the, the most difficult thing mentally was, do we bring the entire attitude of this old restaurant to this new restaurant on a larger scale? Or are we creating a new atmosphere, dynamic, and story? And I think when we first opened, it was like this weird hybrid of the two. Um, and what was Old Co. like? No front it, of the house, it, really. Yeah, extremely controlled chaos. Yeah. Mm. Um, where we didn't even look at the reservations for who was coming in. Um, people just showed up. They sat down and we gave them food. Pretty much there was no 
like 100% no frills and no kind of, um, yeah, no, like, uh, like I think of the connections that we have to the customers now and it's, I mean, it, it couldn't be further from the old restaurant and, and as much as like, kind of like all the different detail that goes into it. Um, but it was very, like a, a very raw kind of experience of people coming in, sitting down. Right in front of you. Right in front of you, like literally a foot and a half, um, as like as close as could be. Uh, and then, you know, us trying to just deliver a very like, uh, very consistent experience, like as far as the food was concerned. So it was like very orchestrated in terms of what we could do because we knew exactly like we were full every single night. So we knew it'd be exactly 24 covers a night for dinner and exactly 12 people for lunch. Um, and that made the planning part for like the OCD and me great. It was a very great, uh, you know, fix. And it's easy to have control chaos when it is small and limited. It's, uh, I would dare say you can be a little bit more adventurous, or I would say like, uh, you know, you can go live without a net because you can catch your mistakes sooner. You can try to do, say like, I'm going to break down this fish a la minute. I'm going to break down this pork, blah, 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 all things that you may never do in a larger restaurant, but you, there was total transparency at the old co and it was intimacy that you only find in Japan as far as I know. Right. Um, from a service standpoint, what did you think Old Co. was about, Sue? I think that Old Co. was um, this beautiful miracle that came out of obstructions, right? Like, it was tiny, and there was only three chefs on the line with one uh, downstairs in the basement. Um, they could do whatever they want, play whatever music they wanted. And, and there's a power to that. But the flip side of that is that, uh, complete control can sometimes just be a, a little fascist. Right. And, and I remember one of my early services there, um, there was very little communication between the back of house and the front of house, uh, that was work related. So, I don't know if this is this is kosher to talk about, but like the uh, one of the guests asks uh, one of the two servers, the front of house servers, um, about a crudo that they had, and the server told them something that was maybe true two days ago, but the crudo was changed since then, and so there was misinformation. So it was that lack of communication that was. Uh, that stood out to me. It really had first. a pulse. <laughs> like nothing was ever the same at Old Co. Right, Every day right. was a different right. day. Right, but the front of house never really kept up with that. There was a, a, a divide. And, you know, Old Co., I know because I made it originally, I wanted the spirit to have the Lostrance, Pascal Barbeau. Right. Every day is what we can make with the best ingredients possible. And yes, there's some structure. We had some dishes that were carryovers and mainstays and but that that day for a cook to walk in to be excited, be like, "Hey, we can do anything." Mm. Um, would you say that that got old? That yeah, because it was hard. Why is that hard to grow in that environment? Because it's like this. Uh, there's no structure. There's no. There's nothing to kind of like rise above kind of, um, you know, we could go to the market, buy whatever we wanted, come back, cook whatever we wanted. There was kind of like not enough like editing or thinking or 
um, thought process happening. It was kind of like, what's the most, you know, complicated thing we can do for the 36 people that are coming for lunch. It was very like self-serving. Um, but that was beautiful though, in its own yeah. way, where, where it was good, it was really good because you guys didn't edit as much. Mm -hmm. You didn't overthink. It was so much more spontaneous, but all of you guys had such a high skill uh, skill set that you could check each other in in this sort of like jazz scat way, um, and and what was laid before the guests was beautiful. Yeah, but eventually you run out of rope. Right, right. that was the problem. And, and you have a very high level of proficiency at Old Co. It was unbelievable. It was so exciting, and I always felt that it was a little bit sometimes even not like Lestrance, but Pierre Gagnier, where uh, if you haven't been there, you know, you might have like eight dishes that were not so good, but the two dishes were the most transcendent thing you've ever had. And you're like, I think they're the best meal I've ever had. And I think we had a better ratio than two out of 10, but Co was a very special place. And I saw that not only physically were we breaking and busting out because that place was very hard to operate out of, which also made Co special, but provide Sean the opportunity to grow into the kind of chef that he could be, in my opinion, and you with a service that we've worked together, right? We sort of had a test run in Australia, mm -hmm. what I knew you were capable of. Because um, I, you know, Sue doesn't like compliments, which is why I love complimenting her. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think she, is, at a time when we opened up Australia, she showed me the importance of front of the house, right? And, and I knew that your standards were so high that eventually, you know, we would hitch onto your wagon. And I think it had a great impact on Momofuku as a whole, as we had to grow out of our sort of juvenile phase. And we had to make that change. So we were looking for, how many years were we looking for space for, for to move co? I feel like you started looking for a space like the the after the first week it was open. Yeah. I remember there was talking about Queens and Brooklyn and like it was kind of this and there was like a rooftop somewhere yeah. like all of these different things for forever like it was this enormous like never-ending dream that the restaurant was going to move so finding the right space yeah a lot of spaces it just didn't feel right a lot of hours and days spent trying to take care of co when we found extra place what were you guys thinking? Uh, I went, I remember eating at the restaurant that was there before us when that was thrown out as a possibility. I actually went there with Josh and uh, we had dinner and just sitting there. It was so big. Uh, and it was just, it was a restaurant that was divided into two restaurants and they had like a little kind of fondue restaurant in the front, and bigger restaurant in the back. And it was just like this huge possibility of like, man, this could be like a really cool thing. Um, I remember being so excited about it and then it was, you know, really, really happened. And, and then like, you know, I remember just drawing for months, like potential layouts and talking about it and thinking about it. And what was the menu going to be like? What was it going to feel like and look like? Yeah, it was cool to have almost like a confirmed reality. And I raised, I raised money for this restaurant because you know, we wanted to give you guys every opportunity to build a restaurant you thought was going to be the the thing that was going to be at the forefront for the next 15 years. Um, 
yeah, like we, I think the, the, the change in the space with the addition of more chefs in the kitchen kind of enabled us to do more uh, in like a real-time environment. Whereas it's almost like proportionately the same as the old restaurant where we had 12 diners and three cooks. Now we have 30 odd diners. And, you know, but the criticism was cooks. we lost some intimacy. Yes. Because mm-hmm. we didn't know how it was going to work. You know, I just feel like we thought it was going to work the same, but we realized pretty quickly it was a completely different restaurant. We opened a new restaurant. Right. It's and especially and service. Oranges, yeah. You know, so it's like when people have that notion of that super unique uh, hole in the wall, once in a lifetime kind of experience, they, they're still bringing that with them. Um, but it's completely different. And in in the first two years, I think that we were just sort of like trying to find ourselves, right? It, it's it, you're you're still sort of like saddled with that uh, image of what you knew so well for for like seven years. Yeah, it's like I I always think of that whole garage band analogy, and suddenly you're like major stadium. We had to figure out how to work with front of the house too. Yeah, that was huge. That was huge. Yeah, it was interesting to like work in a restaurant that does pre-service, Yeah, you know, and has like education structure. and structure and like timing, you know, uh, and you have to be at this place at this time and the whole team and everyone's got to be set ready for service. And like we handle allergies, you know, it's like this whole, it was a completely different world than before of just like showing up to work, looking at what we got to do, figuring out what music we want to listen to mm-hmm. and then being ready at some point for people to walk through the door. Maturing and growing up. And yeah. a lot of people didn't want us to. Well, for the first yes. two years, it was like, at Old Co., we did this. Yeah. You don't and hear then, that anymore. No, not at all. And I think one of the biggest differences is the cooks weren't serving the food anymore. Old Co., cooks dropped the food. Are cooks still dropping the food at New Co.? Yeah. Yeah. But front of house does too. But helping. I just remember that transition was like weirdly hard for everyone to figure out how to work in conjunction with front of the house. Yeah. I mean, it was a whole new. Especially during service. Yeah. Like watching for pairings, keeping track of who's on what course, you know, like trying to keep groups together so things don't spiral out of control. Like we had such a hard time figuring out how much time we needed for a diner to eat, you know, and people would have to wait to be sat. And, and I, I feel like there had to be a recalibration of how cooks needed to present themselves in front of an audience. Still, still do. <laughs> but yeah. then it was, for whatever reason, I don't know why we felt unprepared, but we were. Hmm. I think because we had some new cooks. Would you, what do you say to any <clears throat> chef or restaurateur that's thinking about opening an open kitchen counter restaurant? What's the biggest difficulty? There's nowhere to hide, and and you're the main show, right? It's like theater. You you have to be aware. You have to do your job, but people are watching you, and you have to sort of uh, be aware that you are putting on a show. Yeah. Well, and the cooks too, right? The cooks yeah. aren't just making food. Cooks are part well, of the, the thing. Oh, yeah. It's the whole game, yeah. and it's long. So you know, like it's. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, what, a seven plus hour mm-hmm. experience of like keeping everything clean and orderly and tight and like, you know, not looking frantic, not making, you know, enormous mistakes. 
um, you know, when you're cooking meat for someone and you're going to slice it right in front of them. And if it's not cooked correctly, you kind of have to like swallow that and, and, and start over. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's a hard, it's hard for a lot of younger cooks that have never worked in an open environment to have that added pressure of not only like the technical pressure of a job, but like now it's like completely on display. Yeah. Are there any other counter seat restaurants in New York or America that cook the way we do where it's not just two seatings and everyone's getting like a banquet style service? Because that was another thing we had a big debate. Do we just do like a six o'clock and like a nine o'clock seating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Co was always one of the few places where you have incremental reservations of like 15, 30 minutes. And no matter what time you sat, you got food cooked for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everyone else, it felt to me, was getting banquet style, which I think is easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much. Much easier. <gasps> and Co never, no, no one understood that intricacy, is that every time you go to Co, we're making a whole new ma- meal for you with a limited sort of space and size, where we could have easily have chosen a service style where you sit down, if you're late, doesn't matter. You're getting the same course that everyone else, which is why people are sort of militant about starting a meal with everyone there at the same time. I'm not saying that's easier. I mean, it's still difficult, but it's what's harder is everyone getting their meal at the time they sit down. It's a com- it's a level of complexity that I don't know how to explain. Can you guys do a better job? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I think about how it's like the the reservations are are staggered a bit, um, and I find it like that's how we always worked in the old space. And like for me, it's easier to have to do things in groups of four or two than it is to do a group of twelve or eighteen, um, and it kind of creates this like pattern through the service where it almost has like a like a, like a, like a beat or like a pacing. And it, once you get to like the midpoint of the meal, at least from a, from a back of house perspective, you kind of get to this space where you can start to like find timing between the groups and coursing that they're on. And then I think what that really helped us was communication in the kitchen of like, when do you fire this lamb? And it's like, as soon as the second course drops, I take my lamb out of the fridge, salt it. When the third course walks, it goes in the pan. And it kind of created this like this like rhythm of almost like consistency that I find easier to manage than this kind of like one shot deal of like, we have one shot to get this right. Um, I think for me and I think for a lot of the individuals that we hired, like they have that kind of like instinct of like every single time I want to try to make this like a little bit better. And it just kind of provided more repetition for that to happen. I remember talking to you about this too, and it, it kind of illuminated for me that you you said it, it's real cooking. I want to cook for these people, as opposed to the uh, sort of the instinct of sandbagging things. So when you sit at the counter, you know your lamb or your beef or your duck is actually. What do you mean by sandbagging things? Where uh, things are, are are ready to be. Served no, and it's okay because we're going to throw, we're throwing shade to everyone else oh. that doesn't do it. Because <laughs> it's true, it's like it's way fucking harder to do it this way. And I don't know if critics or anyone that's not a chef ever sees 
how much harder it is to do. Right. I don't think they know what they're looking at when food is actually being cooked for them. I know that sounds really simplistic. But, but sandbagging. So explain what someone else might do as a sandbagging. Uh, Sean can probably do a better job explaining this. Like I think about um, specific dishes or things that we used to do that probably would highlight what you're trying to describe. Like um, I remember at some point in the first year of our being open in the new space, uh, we put on a dessert that had like a, um, like a baked component. It was like a baked, it was like a small cake. Um, and the, the way that we seat the restaurant starts to, you know, get to this space where it's like, all right, we're going to bake this cake, like in the moment, like people sit down, we are taking out the mixer. We are whipping these eggs. We're folding this batter. We're going to spray out these molds. We're going to line them with sugar. We're going to put the the mix in the, in the, in the tin, and then we're going to bake it at seven 15. They're going to come out of the oven at, you know, seven 35. They're going to cool for eight minutes and then they're going to get them. And everyone's like, that's crazy. But then I'm like, well, shit, the person that sat 45 minutes after the first person is getting this cake and it's already been sitting there for an extra like 45 minutes. So maybe we should split that in half. And then, and then we start to go down that, that hole and the whole thing kind of explodes where you're just kind of like, now the kid's got a mixer and then 20 minutes later, the mixer comes back out and you're splitting this batter in half. And then it's like, all right, well, we're not going to do just the fucking cake. Like at this point, we're going to be like breaking down this venison rack or we're going to be like, you know, I remember we had like a fish course where the guys were breaking down the fish, making the stock, you know, making, sauteing some veg, dropping making the sauce all the menu. Yeah. Dropping mm-hmm. the stock like in service, the blenders on the back fucking freezer it's running it's really loud it was really loud but i'm like yeah but it's like this hot green sauce that's made you don't have to cool it down and it's like done and we just go right on the plate and then everything that's left over is is, is trash but you know so that was kind of what the so the first set year was really trying to do everything all of minute so in the moment prepping out Minimal prep out so you could do most of the prep yeah. during service. Yeah. So breaking down, we're breaking down venison racks mm. with a saw, mm. pe- picking crab meat. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was crazy hard. Yeah, but it's like funny because like I feel like it wasn't like it was to for everyone to get in that head space. But yeah, it got to that space where it was like, all right, well, if I have to break down these six fish and I get to work at eleven in the morning and I start breaking the fish down at noon, I'm probably going to spend forty five minutes. 50 minutes doing it. But if you need that one fish for the first 12 people and you're doing it after their second course walks, it's like, you can probably break that fish down in about, in about 90 seconds. And then what, what are you doing? You're just portioning it and putting it in a pan. Um, so after a while of operating that way, I think everyone started like saving a little bit more time, but it was definitely very scary getting there. Very scary getting there. And we're just 100% not there now. Um, we've definitely walked a lot of that back because it it ended up making a very like unsustainable kind of like pressure, like pressure cooker kind of like kitchen environment. Because not only are you breaking fish down, you're cooking it and plating it mm-hmm. and interacting yeah. with service. That's what I loved about what Co has done, even in old Co, new Co. It's exploring as much of what we can do before like just saying like, hey, we can't do this. Let's try it out. We literally try to do everything a la minute. Yeah. We still, and that doesn't mean we don't do a la minute stuff, but no. we 
still do. It's just not like we're doing like 70% of the prep before service start, not 10%. Yeah, it was, I mean, I think that's still in our, in, in our dish creation and things like that. Now, I think that's still really important that, that as much as possible happens in like a real time element. What, what challenges did you have? Because that first year and really first 30 or 36 months was extraordinarily stressful for you. Mm. It, it's, it's everything. I, I mean, it'll take, you know, a month to sort of like articulate everything. But um, I think honestly, if we work backwards from, from where we are now, the most important thing about Co and what it represents um, it's almost like, you know, co's a, a, a verb and it's always about just driving towards excellence. I know that sounds really sort of like, like a, 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 a weird motto, but it's, um, we, we do push each other. We push each other. We push our team all the time and we're always trying to be dissatisfied and uncomfortable. Um, and it's because of that pushing that everything just is so hard along the way. So, I mean, initially um, working with back of house and getting them to sort of like listen to front of house was really important. My value system is is essentially based on, on family, right? It's a family, it's a tribe. So we have to trust each other. It's like mom and dad have to get along for everybody to be happy. Or at least I, I thought that. So um, that that was the initial challenge. That was a hard transition. I don't think anyone expected that transition to be that hard. No. Why would you? You only know you know what you know, and all of a sudden we're like in in this grand performance. It was a good restaurant. I think it was a really good restaurant. In fact, I I think the first. Three, four months, I thought it was amazing because everything was so all in minute. Mm -hmm. I'd never tasted food like that outside of, say, Japan. And then after that sort of initial, like, push, we were trying to settle in. And I think things got rocky, right? We were – it was a lot of transition for a variety of reasons. And we realized – you guys realized it was – unsustainable way we were operating because people were just working like lunatics mm. and we started to shift in that moment of realizing hey this is not going to work not only is there no balance in our lives there's no balance at work we were getting review and we got three stars but how did you guys feel about that when that happened by pete wells we got two stars michelin guide i thought we were worried about that as well mm -hmm. Um, I think we're always worried about that. And I think that fucked with both of your guys' sanity, certainly mine, mm -hmm. in an unhealthy way. What was the struggle after that first four months for the both of you? It was like keeping up. You know, that was the biggest thing, the hardest thing for me. And then you start losing key people. And uh, we didn't really create i at least for me i never really created any kind of like organization or any kind of like structure for like how we were going to get past like you know day one like it was kind of like all right i have this crew 
we had all been working together for years. Everyone knew the the back catalog and we could create dishes just like by talking about it, you know, using techniques or components from, from the past. Um, and then it, it gets to this point where our, the volume that we were producing, you know, none of us had ever experienced before. Cause we're now doing how many covers instead of 24? 60, 60, you know, and it was like totally different. You know, it was a longer menu, more components. Um, yeah, more, more volume, more product. Like it was, everything was just more than we had ever worked with. And, um, a different product. You guys were so like fastidious and trying to get the best of the best. Yeah. And I remember it being really important that we're like somewhere in my head, I was like, Oh, instead of doing like duck every night, we can just do it like one day a week. So we'll just need to use less duck. But like, you know, the problem with that is like, now you have duck and pork and beef and, you know, chicken and, you know, lamb and venison and, and kind of like having to create these dishes for 60 people every night. And we just, you know, I think everyone kind of just really started to get burnout and kind of like, you know, running out of oxygen in a, in a way, and then kind of like losing those, you know, one or two key people on the, t- on the team. And it kind of just like, it became very impossible to kind of maintain the high of like service. How long did this dark, and I would say it's a darker period for Co. how long did it last? Because once the euphoria of the first year ran out, you know, from my perspective, because uh, I was busy getting my fucking life together too, right? Right around New Cope and up, my life was in complete shambles. And I wasn't there as much as I'd like to. And I also didn't know how to help because I had completely low confidence in my skill set. Plus, I didn't want to step on your toe, Sean. And it was very hard for me to figure out how to be part of it, but not part of it, but also help out with ideas. And I didn't want to, you know, still working on some dishes here or there, but it was hard because I know you were struggling to find your voice and your leadership. I think front of the house from Sue's perspective was very strong and getting stronger. But after that first year and after the Pete Wells review and getting two stars, how long do you think that period of finding your voice and struggle, it was a struggle. How long did that last? Longer than a year. Yeah, it felt like a lifetime. I I think it took three years yeah. to hit rock bottom, sort of. And then it took another year to sort of come out from rock bottom. And I think uh, a year ago is when I personally saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. That's my, my timeline. Yeah, it was hard. It's hard to like stand there and watch. Yeah, it was just, I remember being so frustrated, angry, disappointed, like completely hopeless and just standing there and watching everything around me change mm-hmm. uh, at my own undoing and being very upset about it, you know, and watching people be frustrated like we're getting so angry about so many things, but nothing is really changing or moving in any direction. It wasn't getting better or worse. It was just like mm-hmm. every every single emotion I had to keep it exactly the same. Um, and it was very unhealthy. So we're literally talking about three and a half years before you saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. There were some really unhappy moments. A lot of emotional high, no highs really, mostly lows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, 
just work. I mean, it's like such a small environment to work in, you know, it's like, um, I guess it's like any, anyone else's job, but like just this intensely close relationship that, that I would build, you know, with people. And then it's like just trying so hard to keep it exactly how it is. And then, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like I never could see it in a, in a way. Mm. And like just being so angry, like so angry and not doing anything about it. Um, well, you did, you tried, but I think that's the eternal struggle, right? Like for Sean, I, I think of him as like, with the benefit of hindsight, um, this kind of genius band leader who couldn't quite adapt when you were sort of cast out of, of your, your small garage band and, and he kept fighting it. Um, and it took him a long time and it's not really that long when you really think about it, mm -hmm. um, to, to sort of understand his new environment and how to lead in, in new circumstances, but he never gave up. I think that's the thing. It was he, very, he almost, it's very did. emotional just thinking about all this fucking shit. Like all the talks we had, all the talks we had, and all the talks the three of us had. I don't know if anyone goes and eats at a restaurant and understands the, the intense drama um, and how much people care about it. And at the same time, you are realizing like, oh, fuck, you guys have to grow as leaders and managers of people. But somehow we, we kept it together and people still had a great time. But I feel like was still not finding its voice of what it was capable of because I think the shock really of moving from 163 to new co was that shocking I think it took a long time hmm. for us to realize we couldn't be our old selves myself yourself and Sean and that's like a three and a half years almost four can you believe that it's fucking crazy lived it <laughs> felt like an afternoon <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. And now back to the show. What were some of the problems that we were going through? Oh, boy. I think this is cathartic. Mm. And listen, we can edit this out if you feel uncomfortable, a lot of this, no problem. But I also feel like 
someone listening to this, it's like, we got nothing to hide anymore. So fuck it. Mm -hmm. And I've always maintained that we can do things at Co that no one else can do. And that's being raw and transparent and cooking without a net. And when we play someone else's game, we're going to lose. And I think this is all part of the package. I mean, everything is so personal, right? I, I just keep going back to the fact, and we talk about this all the time with our team. It's like it's it's family, how you treat your family, how I communicate with Sean. Um, we're, we're brutally honest with each other. Um, and we don't pull any punches when it comes to talking with each other or talking to our team. I think that honesty translates, but I think uh, coupled with that, there's the challenge of, of being creative, of being organized, of being disciplined, of, of putting on that show in the most sort of like dynamic and engaging factor. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't have it. It's, it's simultaneous. You can't have one without the other. You have to be honest. You feel like you guys were actually being honest with each other? No. I I know I feel like I had a lot of issues like trusting everyone. Mm -hmm. That's like my biggest problem. Like I felt like I was pretending to trust everyone. I had no reason to not trust everyone. But I just wouldn't let I know I feel like I wouldn't like in a weird way like share the burden or something of the restaurant or I wouldn't or I didn't believe that other people were sharing the burden. And it was just this like just unbelievable pressure. And I and just feeling like everyone's going to leave. I'm going to be stuck with this thing. How is this ever going to get to where it was? It's never going back. Like we're never going to go back to where we were. Um, and just not letting myself see that of like, okay, this is the fucking status quo. Now what can we do? And just being so frustrated. Um, and then kind of like letting things just happen. Um, out of like a lack of strength or something like, you know, someone wants to put on a dish and it's like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it. And not being a leader and like, yeah, let's talk about it. Or like, Hey, here it is. Like, how can we make, what are you trying to get out of this, you know, combination or like, where do you want to go with this food? Uh, and not thinking about it like, Hey, here's a person that has fu the fucking tools that I need. And like, all I have to do is provide like, real feedback, be supportive, listen, coach. But instead I, I saw it as just this like, oh, well, if you want to do it, then fine, just do it. And then on numerous occasions, that person starts to do it. And then I get really upset that they're fucking doing it. And I'm just like, and I, and it's just this battle of just like, I don't know what I want from this person, you know, and just breaking down and then just like, it was hard to not be able to help. You know, Sue and I would talk about it a lot. And I remember our conversations where, you know, I know you're happiest when you're just working on a dish and it's almost like you're working on like a motorbike fixing it or something, right? Like that gives you calm and it's almost a Zen-like thing, but you couldn't find it anymore because you had to be a manager. You had to lead, you had to help other people that were not as good as your previous cooks. And also, you know, I wasn't so helpful in trying to help you guys find your voice and your you know, I, I just was like, hey, where's the story, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do we find our voice? And it's all, all right there, the narrative and all these things. And how do we make sure it's not like anyone else? And your response, Sean, was always like, I don't have anything to say. And I was like, that's fucking foolish, man. It's like, I've never been anywhere. 
What do you think about that now? That it didn't matter. That that it wasn't um, like seeing other things was not like going to change the person that I was. Um, you know, to look at like it's still my own point of view, no matter how many lenses I'm going to put, you know, in front of myself. Um, and yeah, like use that as a crutch of like, oh, well, it's easy for you to like talk about this because you've seen all this, you know, all this different shit. And it was impossible for me to understand that it wasn't necessary for me to like, you know, leave my space to like see what was actually in front of me, which was a group of, you know, 10 or 12 individuals that have altered the course of their life to like be in this room to like work together. Um, and I, I just think I, you know, blamed my lack of like world experience for my inability to kind of like set a forward path. It was hard, man. And I knew I was so hard. Yeah. And I still think back on it and think about like, yeah, I just, I don't know. Like I just was there, like, and I wasn't seeing what was possible, you know? Did you think that there was any way out for you, Sue? Out of that where, where Sean was at. You just have to work through it, you know, and never give up on on your friend and your partner. It's like he, although, yeah, this more more story to that. But like, um, I think initially the struggle for for anyone um, is to feel confident and not in the light of struggle, just blame everything around you. And that was that that was your internal struggle. Yeah, we just had to, you know, go through it. It was hard. But it was also around the time it. where life happens too. You know, life shit happens for everybody. Yeah. And you spend so much and this is something I see all the time in our profession. You spend so much time pouring yourself into this profession where you almost stunt your development as a person outside the kitchen. And then life shit happens and you don't know how to fucking handle any of that stuff. That's why my life fucking imploded. You know, and I know that for each of you guys, that sort of happened too. And it was hard to fucking calibrate, you know, and work wasn't giving you the meaning that you thought it was. And I think it was just a hard time to be around Co. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It's maybe it's the uh, the benefit of hindsight. I, I think that just going through that tunnel of difficulty and, and you talk about this all the time about about suffering. I love it. I get off on the fact that we've we've endured all that and and we we have those life lessons and we have those battle wounds right and we're still here supporting each other like that's awesome and it is awesome and and this is why co is so near and dear to me even though it's your restaurant you guys are doing what you want to do i consider this family and it's been amazing to watch and i'm still pushing you guys to grow in a variety of other ways. Um, maybe that's not for this podcast, but, you know, and feel free to say, I don't want to talk about this, but, you know, Sean has been with the company for since 2008. Uh, seven, seven, Jesus. December, well, December, December 1st, 2007. <laughs> and I think he's one of the most talented chefs and one of the best teachers. And if you want to learn how to cook with protein and meat specifically, I just think he's best in class. And it was very clear to me that it was like 
the phase that I see in a lot of people, including myself, it's uh, when you realize you can't be you anymore because whatever was working for you doesn't work anymore. And I think, again, like we had to come to a resolution. You guys are really a married couple. You're, you're, you're professionally married, mm-hmm. even though you guys are individually married to your other real life partners. There was a time where I was like, I don't know what's going to happen because Sean had to take care of Sean. Mm-hmm. What was going through your head? Did you, were you like, hey, I'm going to take a sabbatical and be like, that's it? Because I, I remember it was like, hey, I don't even know if he wants to even come back to cooking anymore. And I think that's a natural, healthy thing, Sean. Mm-hmm. I told you, I think about that shit all the time. Yeah. How do I not do this ever again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was convinced that I didn't want to do it anymore. Well, yeah, it was like, you know, the the day or like leading up to it, uh, I was convinced that I was going to take time off and then come back. And then the time off started and it was like this crazy withdrawal kind of period for a long time. Um, you want to learn how to make like wood, woodworking too? I, want, yeah, I, want, I wrote down this list of all this different shit I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to like maybe get an apprenticeship at like a, a woodworking studio. Um, you know, I wanted to buy a motorcycle. I wanted to do all these like projects at my house. I wanted to just do all this different shit. Um, and it, you know, I ended up just basically chopping firewood for two months. <laughs> <laughs> which is an incredibly meditative thing. I highly recommend it. You'd fucking love it. Um, you'd really love it. <laughs> um, yeah. Like write a bunch of books on like, you know, firewood and, you know, like all these different like methods. It's like all this like Zen type shit. Um, and it was like the, the week before the, the sabbatical was supposed to end. And I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know why I just had a complete 180 and I was completely convinced that we were, you know, you, me and Marge were supposed to meet. And then I was, I had the whole thing in my head of like, all right, I'm going to go in and just tell them that, you know, this isn't like working for me anymore. Like I need to choose a different path. And I don't know what it was, but I, I was just like, I think, feel like I was like cooking dinner at home or something. And I was just kind of like, no, this is like what I'm supposed to be doing. And I had to really ease in going back to work. How many months did you take off? Four. Four Four months. Four months. So, you know, Marge and the office worked with you to create. And this was great. And this is one of the benefits of having a a larger restaurant company where we figured out a plan, right, Mm -hmm. for for you to to sort of have a reset. And I was incredibly thankful that we could offer that. And if anyone deserved that, it was going to be one of our longest tenured sort of most important players that was that was hard that was fucking hard it was hard for you too sue it was a a tornado of emotions you had no guarantees that your partner was going to come back right um yeah that was horrible but I think I think it, it's such a great parable for all of us it's like everybody goes through this period of like I want to quit this. I want to quit this. The grass is going to be greener on the other side. Um, and to some somehow come back around to you're exactly where you are. You're meant to be here and you're going to j- 
just not waste another moment. Um, if it took all of that emotional turmoil to get there, it's worth it. So you just have to not give up. That's it, right? It's it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty simple after you go through it. But when you're going through it's, it, mm-hmm. it's the worst thing on earth. I mean, it was like watching, I was like a kid or one of your close friends watching a divorce happen. It was fucking like marriage story. Oh, yeah. So hard to watch, guys. And everyone was so invested in it. And it's like, it's making me emotional thinking about it. But it was like, fuck. All we can do is let this happen. Well, remember when we did the town hall to announce to everybody, the staff, that this was happening? um, Because, you know, we have like 30-something kids, right? Right. And everybody has to know what's going on. And it was just like full-scale bawling. It's like (sighs) dealing with that sort of rawness is is really hard that was so hard i've already yeah. blocked that out because <laughs> um, i just didn't expect so many people to just cry it was like telling your parents we're taking a, a separation break completely that's really sort of what it was personally for you and it was also separation yeah and how do we let the public know that like everything's okay simultaneously we you know it was it was fucking shitty <laughs> But that's why, like, values are so important, right? You, you, like, mom and dad are separating, but we love you kind of thing. It's like, okay, it's still hard, but, but you know you're safe to a certain extent. Yeah. And I think there was a trust there. And that's why it's so important for us to sort of establish that trust um, and to have people understand truly, truly that we care about them, not from a just a, a, a employee point of view, but it's like people. This is our community. This is our family. There's no buts about it. What did you learn about operating co with Sean away? Holy crap! <laughs> oh, honestly, it was it was I was hanging on by my fingertips. Um, the support of the team was really important. Everybody just, we didn't know what was going on. It it really felt like we were driving off the edge. Uh, The the only clarity that I have is just never give up. I think, um, did we ever tell Sean the the, the New Year's Eve menu? He knew it. That story? He knew it. That's when I was like, holy fuck, I mean, fuck, you didn't Sean. live through it, but... Mm-mm. Please come yeah. back. In my mind, I was I was sending like a prayer. I don't think I've prayed <laughs> in years. I was like, please, God, Sean Gray, please come back. This is so hard right now. Yeah. Because what Sean really brought was like this producer editing, hey, this is a good idea. Let's, let's go down this road. Teams need leaders. Good leaders. I was foolish enough to think that Sue could just edit ideas. You can. No, you, nah, I nah. think you do a good job. I think you do a good job. Yeah. Except yeah. when you try <laughs> to create ideas. Right. Well, that's not my <laughs> For job. Culinary. It For was culinary. Not, it was not my job. And and it's here's the thing. It's like, don't take on jobs that you're not qualified to do. Um, but listen, you but, were presented an almost impossible task, as, as were you. And that's why I, my heart really gets sad when I think about how difficult four years were. It was fucking hard. 
man, Co was not rosy at all. We, it came from Old Co being just the time of everyone's life. This is the best to basically being like, fuck. Yeah, but that was like play school. It wasn't like a real restaurant. It was like a test kitchen. It was so awesome. It was like this lab where everybody, everyone could just sort of like take risks and, and, and hang out. And now it's like a real restaurant and you're responsible for not just six people, but like 35 people. And I don't want any listener to think, oh, like what? what? I was like, no, like we are very hard on ourselves and every fucking day it's getting better, but shit, man, restaurant relationships are tough. And in a closed environment like Co with as complex as it became, man, like it's fucking crazy what you guys have built all along the way, even from the lows, I don't look at it as a, like, just like a down mark. It was like, it's like a, one of these loops, these circles that while you're going down, you're still going up. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's not just this straight trajectory. It's a loop. And that's how I always felt when I described Co or Marge and I would talk. It's, hey, I know it's a low point and everyone thinks it's low, but when they're going down, it's still on an upward trajectory. And it had to have been, or Co wouldn't continue with evolve. And when you take a step back of what you guys have done at the new space, it's fucking remarkable, guys. For all the difficulty, you guys still put this, you fed this engine of, okay, we might have periods where it's not good. Somehow you still found the time to reflect upon it and make it better. Across the board, from service elements to culinary. How did that fucking happen? That's what I want to know. With all of this fucking shit that went over the past four, four years, three and a half, four years, how did you guys find time to make it better? Because I don't think any of us realized it was getting better too. Well, I think it was like, you know, even before I took the time off, it's like, okay, well, here's this. It was like the confidence of just like, hey, here's this thing in front of us. We can, and we have ideas of what we want to do. It's like, well, let's put the pen to the paper and, write this shit down and then see if we can do it. And that was kind of like the opening of the bar, you know, something we had spoken about for a very long time. Um, and then just constantly, I mean, it's kind of like how you say that we're always micromanaging these like kind of like small details. Um, but that was like one of the smaller details. It's like, you know, our bigger focus was definitely like service and the day that's in front of us. Uh, but, you know, the back burner of, all the small other, you know, fairly tiny things that we wanted to one day accomplish um, just kind of slowly started getting chipped away at, you know? And then I think there's some kind of like momentum that happens when you make one accomplishment. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Sean takes the sabbatical and now when he comes back, what were you thinking? And you, you, Basically, like, I want this. I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I remember just the first week was a little, like, scary. Um, but I think there was a lot of support for me to, like, take small steps and not just dive back into old habit. Um, and, you know, functioning, the restaurant having been functioning without me created this kind of system where, like, food was getting put on the table still. Um, and for the, 
for the first time, I, I felt like I could truly come in, look at what was we were doing, provide my two cents, tweak something, maybe create something, focus on something with someone else, and then leave. You know, and I feel like that first couple months back, I felt like there was so much happening. Like, and it was all, it, everything just felt great. And you also moved to Jersey. You live on a farm now. Basically. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I moved. That was, I think, a, a large piece that added a lot of stress that led up to my sabbatical. Um, you know, I live about an hour and a half away from the restaurant. Um, and it was really tough, you know, really tough opening the bar and like being there until midnight and then sitting in traffic at the Holland Tunnel for a fucking hour to get home at like 2.45 to then wake up at, you know, 8.30 to drive back to the restaurant. And it was this never ending cycle, but now somehow it feels fine, <laughs> which is, I've loved that, how that, I don't know how that happened, but um, yeah, I started just being more like coming back, being more responsible to myself and kind of like, Hey, it's 10 o'clock. I got to get out of here. And everyone's like, all right, yeah, later. Um, and just using the time that I was at the restaurant more productively, you know, instead of trying to find reasons to be upset about why something wasn't happening. Um, yeah. And do you feel that, I mean, I know the answer and I'm sure the audience would as well is all of that heartache and hardship finally on all those seeds planted during that time, it's finally paying dividends. Absolutely. I mean, I'm 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 in a high right now. You know, this this whole year, because um, it feels right. It doesn't feel tortured. It doesn't feel stilted. Um, and that's why I sort of like go back to the beginning. It's like as long as you you just keep being honest with each other you still don't know what's going to happen like sean having let go and not not see that the world's going to end like everything's just running as usual but he can sort of get more clarity as to how he can add value to the team and and that sort of manifested and it, it reinforces your behavior i guess What did you learn for yourself as a manager? Um, oh, I this answer is going to piss Dave off so much. Uh, I have what I want, uh, but I would like to be able to scale it. I have what I want in terms of um, a team that I really, really trust, that I really like. Um, your front of the house is basically your 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 core staff has been with you since the move for the most part. Uh, no, not really, no. But a long time, like three years. Um, people who wouldn't otherwise, you know, part timers who ended up staying because they believed in in something uh, greater than themselves. It's weird. I don't know. The whole thing. It's like it's so small and yet so big. Why does it work? You know, after all these highs and lows, what is it about whatever you did that made it work? Because 
through thick and thin, you you were the glue. Sometimes the glue was good, and sometimes the glue was bad. But yeah. you know, you kept the whole thing together. I mean, I don't know how to answer. Like, does a mom think about like, am I a good mom? Am I? You, you try to do your best, right? You don't. You don't think about it that much. You just want your kids to be happy. I think it's because you, <laughs> it's your life, and you actually care. Like it's not a job. I agree with that statement. Like yeah. it's your life. This is like what you do. And it seems whenever I'm in co, like it's healthier than it's been in a long time. And you've been able to work on other things and not be there as much. There's structure that may or may not have been there before, but it's, it's, um, I don't know how to describe it, but would you both agree that it's in the best place it's been ever? I, I think so for me, I mean, and well, yes, I think there have been better moments, but I think that like my urge is to always like change shit, like mix shit up and like Mm -hmm. do like, just not create chaos, but kind of be like, oh, we should do this tomorrow, this, that, whatever. And I feel like now I have a team in place that's kind of like, wait, let's make a smart decision. Let's not be reckless. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we need to make sure the front of house knows what's going on. And I'm like, kind of like, (laughs) well, we'll we'll tell them, (laughs) you know, but like people are like the, the team that we have in place for the kitchen is just like smarter, you know, And and not like the previous team wasn't smart. It's just kind of like, it's more uh it's it's like literally one team it's no longer just like hey i want to do this let's make this happen it's kind of like well wait what you know we need to talk with uh bev and make sure they're cool with the pairing and then you know we're not sitting on this wine or whatever and it's and it's interesting like you know people's priorities are so different um that i'm kind of like like take a step back and i'm just like wow that's okay yeah that, that sounds you think that's great. been reflected in the creation of the menu and how it's consumed by the diner. I mean, I think it's really important to sort of like, we, we talk about this all the time when we built the bar mm-hmm. of how it can serve the engine of creativity leading into the main dining room menu where, where it's appropriate, right? So, and we, we keep pushing for dishes in the bar menu to sort of like the bar is um, I was talking to Esther the other day. It's like, let's say we were to put 50% of the thing like mentally you're thinking 50% of the dishes that you put at the bar besides the classics are meant to sort of be in an organized fashion, uh, something for the main dining room tasting menu. You've got another th- 30% where you can sort of like play around a little bit and maybe 20% just abject failures, you know, but you, you have to sort of like have that mixed bag of um, concepts that are constantly being worked on that, that has in a way a linear connection to the tasting menu. 
I mean, when we built the bar, we always talked about it, you know, being, serving that purpose in a way. It's like the artist studio to the gallery that's in the main dining room. This is not a non sequitur to this, but it's like, I feel like it's changed because you guys finish on rice now. <laughs> in your own way, you guys finish on rice. Mm-hmm. And not just a rice ice cream. It is just what it is. Mm-hmm. You need to elaborate on that for the... Uh... I've been trying to get these guys to embrace rice in a myriad of ways and, um, you know, to have a point of view in the sense that whatever we're cooking has to tell a story. And and I I believe now more than ever, even though we're not not there exactly where we want to be, that the story of Ko and the food that's being made by Sean and the team and the service elements of Sue – and her team are now finally at a place where it's neither here nor there. Like you really can't put your finger on where is this exactly? What does this look like? It's a lot of elements that are hidden. It's something that to me now, which is what we've always wanted. It's funny that you guys can't sometimes see it when we all sat in that room together and be like, this is where we want to hash this out. It is a New York experience. Mm-hmm. In a way that isn't <clears throat> going back to the classics. It's a New York of where it's going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a counter restaurant that is going to be the, the new norm. But I also feel that it's a mixture of different techniques from Japan, from France to America. There's a certain amount of playfulness, but there is a structure to the menu now, mm-hmm. right? That wasn't always there. And I think that the the dishes now aren't trying to go for 11s. Some of the menu is, hey, this dish is going to try to set up for this next dish and the dish mm-hmm. before it. In the same way you were talking about, hey, we're going to put this dish on. Let's make sure that it's in balance with the tasting menu and all these things. But these are things that elements that have, were elusive to us for so long. Mm-hmm. I always wanted you guys to finish on rice and soup and pickles. And I I wasn't going to force it upon you. I certainly, yes, I could have. But I saw that evolution of what that last dessert was, which was then like, fine, let's just shut, have Dave shut up. And you guys put that beautiful wild rice ice cream. And now I just think that the, the, that rice course is, is it's brilliant. Mm. What is that dish, the rice course right now, the dessert? So it's uh, amazake with uh, yogurt sorbet. And uh, persimmon. But it looks like what? It looks yeah. like a like a sunny side up egg. Yeah, on, on, and, and and that to me is that is like if you're really a food geek, you're gonna notice probably about five or six chefs that it pays a nod to. You're gonna know that it blends a variety of culinary traditions, and that's what I think Co is. It's at its best. It's never trying to tell one story. It's trying to tell like multiple stories, multiple stories simultaneously, and we hope. That it's something that you can't see the seams, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's getting there. Do you feel that... Are you comfortable with maybe never getting three mission stars? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Do you oh give a fuck God. about it anymore? Yes. 
Do we talk about? Do you care about it as much as you used to? Uh, it. I don't know. It's not in the forefront of my mind. Uh, the opinion of our peers obviously matters. I don't know. It's, it's just a juggle. I mean, it, it, of course, it matters, but that's not the that's that's not the be all and end all. I think it's more it's more of a focus now on the health of the people that work in the restaurant and the people that dine in the restaurant. I think are the probably the only focuses. Like, kind of like, are we delivering? Are we delivering the best possible experience to the people that have been dining with us now for 10 years? Like, are we still giving them our best, you know? And then I think about that, like, all all the fucking time. Um, Like, but not from a point of, like, I'm going to be really angry if we don't, you know? Right. Um, Way less anger now. You guys less worried about being cool, too. I never cared about being cool. No. I care about being cool. (laughs) <laughs> but no, I'm le- definitely less worried about it. I, I feel like... Well, like cool in terms of like impressing people. You know what I mean, Sean? Yes. Like the food has to be cool instead yeah. of being you. Yeah. 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 Yes. From where we were 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. My fucking God. They're like looking through some old photos. It's like the food looks so ridiculous. <laughs> like so stupid. You know, like I can't believe we were trying to do that. You know, making things into like perfect squares or it's just like so funny. It's it's funny now to look at how not important that is, that that's not one of the boxes that needs to be checked in creating a dish that does not require it to have something that no one has ever seen before. I mean, selfishly, I need you guys so badly because this is something that I would normally have time to do, but I don't. I don't, and it fucking kills me. And there are very few people on this planet I would ever trust to, like, do this other than you guys, right? And because of the values that you guys hold. And it was it's not because you've gone through the good. I don't – you guys know I don't give a shit about the good. I always think that integrity is defined at your lowest moments, and it's something you guys have in fucking spades. At every moment of your guys' career at Momofuku – you guys never bailed at the hardest moments. And I think it's hard for someone that's listening to see that as an inspirational message, but <laughs> I certainly do. We could talk all about the fucking positives that happened. There are plenty of them. Mm. But to me, if we can go pretty deep in all the dark, dark recesses of what Momo Fukuko has been, and the fact that at every point I feel that most people would have fucking walked, to me, that's the greatest fucking story of all. And those are lessons that I wanted us to talk about because I think there's a lot of people in this industry or not even in cooks, just in any field that would be like, hey, like, you're right. Like, not breaking is maybe their greatest skill set and to learn from those mistakes. And I'm at a place in my career as Marge takes over, has already taken over most of the company responsibilities. I need you guys selfishly to fucking be better versions of whatever I could do. And and that's why I I hold you guys to such high standards is I don't know if there's anyone else that can do it other than you guys. And I don't feel like, I feel like it's almost a waste sometimes that it's just in one restaurant. And I also know that maybe that's what you want. And I feel really guilty at times to fucking be like, no, you guys have to do more, but I'm asking you guys, I need you guys to do more. 
because it's the same stuff where I, I talked to Polly in Sydney. It's like, she gets it because he's been through shit. And I don't know if you, you talked about it, like, Sean, one reason why we like the inertia is because it's easier. And if anything, the one attribute that I admire most about you guys is you're humans. Yes, it's not always hard, 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 but you've never shied away from it. And that's really the most important skill set for this new, for any project that we have, but the one that I'm trying to figure out how to get the most out of you guys. And, you know, my definition for you guys of success is how do you work on a new project yet simultaneously make code better? Otherwise, yes. let's not do it. Right. right. And I know I'm putting you guys at a... Well, that's what we're trying to do. And I think of like Co is a very, very different animal. It's like a high performance vehicle and it requires so much uh, relentless care that if somebody doesn't care as much or even more, um, things start to fall between the cracks. And maybe it needs to. And then somebody really has to understand that and, and uh, try and patch it up or, or solve for it. And we have to allow for those cracks to happen. But not until, you know, a critical point. We'll see. The next, next step, it doesn't get easier, only gets harder. Bring it on. Hopefully that was an illuminating conversation. You know, we love each other. And uh, when you love someone like you do in your family, it has its highs, it has its lows, but it's a very special thing what they have at Co. And I, again, it's family to me. And hopefully if you made it through to the end of this podcast and you're in this business or you're in some kind of endeavor that you could relate. And, um, you know, this fucking business is hard. And oftentimes we make it harder than we need to, but I'm excited to see where Sean and Sue and the whole team of co are going to take their restaurant. And they have all of my support as they do from Marguerite Mariscal and the whole Momofuku team. And we'll see where it goes, but uh, they're going to keep their head down and they're going to get better. And hopefully you understand that their intent is perfect. It really truly is. Whether we get there or not, whether we get a number one ranking or some bullshit like that, or three mission stars, I don't know if that matters anymore because I, I can tell you that they're trying their very best and that's all I can ask for. Anyway, since this has been a relatively longer podcast, want to get to just one Ask Dave at MajorDomeInMedia.com. Please send us on iTunes, give us five stars and we will answer your question if you give us five stars and ask a question. Or you can send it the other way, which is send an email at AskDave at MajorDomeInMedia.com. And uh, let me get to this question this week. Gabriel Murphy sends in a question to ask Dave at majordomamedia.com. My question is about taking care of your equipment as a home chef. For example, how should I be sharpening my knives, seasoning my cast iron, etc.? On TV and in the industry, it seems like chefs are almost religious about keeping their knives sharp. But do you think the same should be, go for people who are just cooking for themselves or the families at home? Gabriel, great question. You know, sharpening knives, I'll be honest, I don't do it every day anymore as a line cook, as someone that worked in kitchens professionally. It was one of my great joys to do. 
And I thought that I was really good at sharpening my knives until I got to Japan and they literally did it every, the same crew. So one team would work lunch and dinner and before service, they would sharpen their knives. And after service, they would sharpen their knives. So if, if you worked one shift, you would sharpen your knives after lunch and then you would sharpen it again because you've been using those knives for mise en place before dinner. And then after dinner service, you would sharpen again for the next day. So at least two times a day, I would see in some of the Japanese kitchens I, I, I staged in two times a day. And that's when I was like, this is at a whole different level. But also, if anyone says they have good knife skills, you just have to go to Japan and not even a great kitchen. Basically, everyone that cooks in Japan from even the Chinese restaurants with cleavers, they have mad knife skills that pretty much blow anyone away in the Western world for the most part. And it's an extension of your career, right? Like you want to keep your tools sharp and clean. So it's an important indicator of how serious and how successful you want to be as a young, I wouldn't say young, as just a, as a cook, you know, but I'll be honest, sometimes like you just don't have the time or you're tired, but for sure on my one day off or two days off a week, I would always have my whetstone. I would have three different whetstones at different grades and just sharpen my knives and watch TV. And it was as therapeutic as anything. And I'd look forward to that. And if you know what I'm talking about, guys, sharpening your knives at home is like getting a massage of the brain. It's so therapeutic. At least it was for me. I love that repetitive motion. One of the things that I have different from a home versus a professional kitchen is most of my knives are Japanese in a variety of ways. And whether they're carbon or not, They've been Japanese. And the reality is now that I don't cook that much anymore, hardly at all, just to be honest, one of the things I've always done because it happened to me as a younger cook is I've given them away to people that are going to make better use of them. So, I mean, I worked my life to develop what I thought was a pretty sick knife collection and I've given most of them away. But at home, I use a Wusthof. I use a Santoko Wusthof which has a rounded front edge. It's an eight inch. I use a Victoria Knox paring knife. And I, I love Victoria Knox as a paring knife regardless. In my professional bag, there would always be a Victoria Knox serrated and a Victoria Knox straight blade paring knife. For real delicate knife work, I would have obviously something that was a shorter blade or something that was for tourneying. But just doing like knife work that was, you always need that sort of, I wouldn't say it's a shitty knife, but it's a knife that is disposable ultimately. Uh, you can still sharpen and such. But at, at home right now, that's what I have. And I also have a serrated. And that's about it. Um, all that matters truly is a knife at home that is dependable and is sharp. I'm always shocked at how unsharp and dull so many home blades are. And it gives me the heebie-jeebies. And I get very scared whenever I am at someone's home and their knives are not sharp because... To me, that's a recipe for a bad accident, especially when you're cutting stuff. It just doesn't give you the right edge and something bad can go wrong. Plus, because it's not sharp, you have to use more force, so it damages the food. And because you use force, a knife kick can go the wrong way. And having cut myself so many different ways, I've seen so many bad disasters in a kitchen from amateurs and professionals. And I've cut myself so many stupid times that I try to keep my home knife as sharp as possible. But that's it. Like, I don't even have a steel at home. I just sharpened my knife, mainly because I don't know where my steel is. 
But the biggest misconception for home cooks, and I've seen it a lot, is they think the steel, and actually not home cooks, inexperienced cooks that use their steel and think that it's sharpening it. And without going into the science of it, it doesn't sharpen it. It just sort of levels out the blade because within the blade, there's another, you know, it just straightens the blade ultimately. And I just prefer German knives. I'm not a fan of global. I'm not a fan of shun. A lot of these like knives that are just to me, a bunch of bullshit or, you know, Global looks nice, I think, but the steel is too hard. It's too hard to maintain and to keep sharp, in my opinion. Wusthof makes a great knife. German blades for home for me. And uh, it's not like I I need a, a Yanagi at home or something like that or a Deba or anything like that. So what I cook at home is very different than what we cook in restaurants. So I have different tools. That being said, I still have good spoons. Spoons to me are super important, whether it's a slotted or not. But at home, I have Kuhn spoons, both perforated and not. Great Kuntz, the great chef, and he was at Lespinas uh, years ago, a restaurant we've talked about a lot. And one of the things that he's sort of left as an imprint of his success was the creation of his spoons via JB Prince in New York City. And to me, that's what I, I have to use good spoons while I cook. So, you know, that's about it. Everything else is just knives and spoons and all that other stuff. I guess we should do a whole episode about what to have in your professional bag versus what you have in kitchens. But I probably sharpen my knives at home once a month because like, honestly, the amount of home cooking I do in one month is the equivalent of like maybe two hours in a professional kitchen. And that's just the truth. Like if you work as a line cook in a busy restaurant, you are using the shit out of your knives and it gets dull by the end of the day or by the end of one service. So you got to keep that shit sharp. You have to keep it maintained. It drives me absolutely fucking bonkers when people show up to work or even a stage or a job interview with dull knives. Please don't do that. But the reality is at home, just keep it sharp. And if you can't do it because inevitably, you know, using your own whetstone, honestly, I, I don't know if I didn't cook professionally, I would know how to do that. I think there are YouTube videos. I've never seen one. So I've just realized I've spoken endlessly about this question, Gabriel. I'm going to shut the fuck up because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. That's it, everybody. Thank you so much. Again, thank you to Sue Wong Ruiz, Sean Gray, and the whole team of Co. Two podcasts in a week. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm already in the weeds. Stay tuned next week, everybody. I appreciate it. Really do. Thank you so much. <laughs>